Welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly and it will play music that is unique to you. Your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome to another podcast. Today is a, a very interesting podcast. We're, we're inter- interviewing uh, Dr. Tom Badalari from uh, Columbia University in New York, and he is a sports medicine doctor. And we've had some discussions recently about uh, heart rate variability and, and what it means, uh, what it means to people who are healthy, what it means to people who are unhealthy, and how it, as he says, uh, could evolve to become another vital sign. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Badalari. Thanks, Sean, for having me. It's really a pleasure to be doing this, and thank you for the work you're doing in projecting more information about what we do as sports medicine physicians. Absolutely. So, so tell me, what is what is heart rate variability, and and what's it being used for? Heart rate variability is the beat-to-beat change in your resting heart rate. So, when we think of resting heart rate, often people will say that an athletic heart rate might be 60 beats per minute, but your heart doesn't beat like a metronome. It has some variation and there's an increasing and a decreasing duration of that beat to beat interval that is governed by a few different forces. Uh, One of them is just physiological so that there's respiratory variation. When you breathe in, your heart will speed up and when you breathe out, your heart will slow down just based on the amount of blood that is returning to your heart. Uh, but there's also an autonomic nervous system, a part of your brain that controls the functions of your body that you're not necessarily cognitively managing, like your heart rate, like your digestion, skin temperature, mood, and things like this. So heart rate variability helps to determine the amount of input from the two different poles of that system. So sympathetic is your fight and flight system. Parasympathetic is your rest, digest, and think system. So predominantly, HRV is a measure of resting parasympathetic tone. And uh, when your sympathetic nervous system is active, there will be diminished heart rate variability. And when the parasympathetic system is, is governing, there'll be more variability. And we tend to think of there being sort of a sweet spot of variability for individuals. And that too much or too little is, is a sign that you're either under um, performing from a parasympathetic standpoint or you're overloaded from a sympathetic standpoint. And in either uh, circumstance, the heart rate variability will be suppressed. And if the parasympathetic tone is too high, the heart rate variability can actually get to a point where being too high is not necessarily better, right? And and you're over uh, compensating on the parasympathetic side. So heart rate variability is one way to measure autonomic nervous system tone. Autonomic nervous system is kind of like the the unconscious, the you don't know what's going, you didn't know that this was going on necessarily type uh, part of your nervous system. I mean, everybody knows the skeletal muscle, the pain, right? I'm moving, I'm reacting, 
I'm, I'm choosing to do certain things, but then also I feel certain things like my senses and the pain or, or you know, wh- whatever. I mean, that, that part of the nervous system that most people are considering, that's not the autonomic nervous system. Right, right. So there's the volitional or the part of your brain that controls the things that are under conscious control. And an example of that might be you feel like your nose is itchy and you decide you're going to scratch it. Um, it's also the part of your uh, brain that tells you to move from place to place. And you have conscious control of those activities. Um, some might argue that there's some unconscious control in, in, in volitional activities you know, in terms of your cerebellar and your, your sort of uh, midbrain function and modulating movements. But there is a conscious control, generally speaking, when it comes to using your musculoskeletal system. When it comes to the idea of what's happening in the background, you know, what's the base level operating system, that part of your brain has different names. So people uh, as of late uh, have like Joe Rogan, for example, calls it the monkey brain. Um, Carl Sagan called it the lizard brain. But it's the part of your reactionary uh, unconscious drives, right? And so things like mood and, and heart rate and digestion are controlled by this system without you having to turn it on or off. Uh, the, the example I use in the office is, imagine a black bear were to enter your room right now, you know, wherever you are listening to this podcast, and you suddenly turn around and there's this bear, you know, so I'm, I'm coming to you from New York and New Jersey, and in New Jersey, there's a black bear problem. You know, the bears are multiplying and they're coming into suburban neighborhoods. Um, you can imagine how you might react to a 400-pound bear in your driveway the parasympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system is going to control the rest, digest, and think part. So uh, the example I like to give is imagine a beautiful aromatic pizza with beautiful basil and marinara sauce and fresh mozzarella, and that comes out of the oven and you get the scent of that fresh food. You don't have to think about salivating. Your digestive juices start to flow and you feel hungry just based on that smell and the, the vision of the pizza. Uh, and you don't have to think about digesting it. So those parts of your body are turned on automatically. So it's the autonomic or automatic part of your brain that is pre-programmed without you needing to give it conscious direction. Right. And, you know, they'll talk about how people have trouble sleeping in a hot room. And it's because the hot room requires some sort of sympathetic, you know, cooling you down, right, or in some way. And then the parasympathetic, you can't fall asleep. Right. So if either system is out of balance, it's, uh, it's, it's a problem. And so your autonomic system turns on your sleep mechanisms. You can't make yourself fall asleep. You can have a nighttime ritual. You can have some, some uh, systems for getting yourself ready for bed. Maybe you take a, a shower and then you spray some lavender on the pillow and uh, maybe you play some nature sounds or something to, to get into the zone of, of sleep. Uh, but creating the zone of sleep is not the same thing as being able to volitionally turn on or turn off sleep. Those things are automated. So this is kind of a measure of how how much of our sympathetic has taken over versus parasympathetic. Is that how people are using this? Well, in the modern world, I would, I would argue that many of us are in a hypo uh, sort of uh, sympathetic state you know, at rest, that there's this vigilant state that comes about because of hyperstimulation, whether it be noise pollution or light pollution or uh, computer screens, um, constant pinging of reminders on your, your, your cellular device and, and your, your smartphone. 
um, wearables that remind you to do 4,000 different things, um, the pressures of work or school. Um, you know, the, in the modern world, there's sort of a never-ending stream of stimuli that are, that are being poured in. And it's very challenging for, you know, a human being to digest all of that. You know, evolutionarily, we're not, we're not wired for all of this input. And so I think that most humans in the modern world are suffering from a hypovigilant state at rest. You know, this sort of low-level sympathetic activity that actually turns off the rest, digest, and think parts of your brain. And so we compensate by drinking coffee and, and, and uh, you know, in some cases using stimulant medications to, to focus and, um, and uh, you know, try to rebalance those systems uh, because part of your brain, uh, it seems silly to use a stimulant to focus. Um, when you think about it just logically, it doesn't seem to make sense. But the way that works is part of your brain is meant to suppress background noise. Uh, there, there is uh, neurologic activity that helps to quiet the background noise, helps to eliminate the distracting uh, factors but that's an energy consuming process that that's not without some cost so um, if you think about you know this this constantly buzzing environment that we live in your brain is constantly trying to suppress all that background activity and i think what ends up happening is that you end up with a low level of, of elevated sympathetic activity even when you should be at rest right so Basically, this heart rate variability is a measure of that. And, and what are some things that it's currently being used for? It most popularly, as it, pop, as it pertains to sports medicine, the, the most common use right now is sports performance. There, there's a lot of different players in this space that are trying to use the data to say whether or not an athlete is ready for, um, for, for exertion or ready for, you know, the their workouts or gameplay, what have you. I think as a measure of day-to-day performance, it's probably not that useful yet. Uh, that being said, it is a good marker of your body's response to stress. In other words, if you didn't sleep well last night, your heart rate variability may be suppressed from your natural baseline. And if you drink an alcoholic beverage uh, or more than one alcoholic beverage, your heart rate variability may be suppressed for 24 to 48 hours. Um, caffeine can suppress heart rate variability, uh, stressors socially, you know, so for kids in school, when we're talking to athletes and we think about, you know, what's their resting heart rate variability, they have an emotional situation, maybe an argument with a friend or, you know, a distressing situation that can impair your heart rate variability. So there's, there's a lot of inputs that can affect heart rate variability that can change uh, the, 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 the measure. Um, but you know, what we're learning is that by looking at trends over time, and if you, you sort of find a steady state where your heart rate variability is more stable, that's more important than the day-to-day measurement. In other words, it's good to have a high level of heart rate variability, um, and it's good to have, you know, this, this um, sort of resting autonomic nervous system balance, but what we don't want to see is volatility in the day-to-day measurement, so that if you have, let's say, your RMSVD is the most common um, mathematical way of determining a number to represent RA variability. If you have a resting uh, HRV of, let's say, RMSVD of 50, and you know that number is relatively stable over a period of time, that's a good thing. Um, whereas if you know on Monday your your RMSVD is 50, and on Tuesday it's 90, and on Wednesday it's 20. Uh, that's not a very good sign for your autonomic nervous system balance. That suggests that there's volatility, that there's 
increasing and decreasing uh, ability to cope with stress. Right. So, so the, the heart rate variability, I mean, as you've said, is, is a little difficult unless you already know what your baseline is, right? If I, if I have a, if I don't have a baseline and I, and I put it on and I go for a really hard workout and the next day I go, wow, my heart rate variability isn't great. Well, it's not supposed to be right. I'm recovering from a hard workout. So it's kind of this, I mean, you have to establish somebody's normal heart rate variability over a period of time. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, so individual measurements where you're comparing you to you is the best way to think about using the heart rate variability measurement. Uh, you actually mentioned another really interesting component, which is, you know, your workload capacity, right? So there, there's uh, different measures of this, you know, like your chronic versus acute workload uh, change is, is a good way for us to think in sports medicine about your risk of, of injuring yourself in an activity. So if you have sort of a, a resting level where you're able to run every day, let's say you're, you know, sport, running is a good sport uh, in terms of measuring output. Um, sometimes it's more challenging to measure the output of a lacrosse player or a football player or a soccer player where, um, you know, wearable technology, yes, and heart rate can tell us a lot about that, that athlete's output. But, you know, in terms of just using sort of a, say, you know, okay, Sean runs three days a week and he runs, you know, this week you decide, you know what, instead of running that 5k, I'm going to do a 10k today. And instead of, you know, achieving a heart rate of 160, I'm going to push to 170 or 180 during this workout. Um, your recovery from that is going to be somewhat impaired compared to your recovery from the 5k. Um, it takes some time to build to that level of workload. And the mistake a lot of athletes make is they make big jumps in, in their chronic versus their acute workload. The nice thing with HRV is, that you can see that you can see that you overdid it in the workout and that your recovery is impaired um, because your heart rate variability is suppressed. Um, so that's one part of the question you answered. And it's a really cool area of, of research that's growing very rapidly. The other part of the question is in relation to what does the measurement mean, right? You've got an RMSDD of 50. I'm using that number because that's sort of an average number. Um, we might think that, you know, an RMSDD between 50 and 90 is good, right? And, and that an RMSDD of 30 or, or 120 is, is, is too extreme. Um, but the reality is that if you look at these numbers, there are some population norms. But the best way to use the data is to compare you to you day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. Um, and if over time your general trend is, 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 is moving up, average or healthy, let's call it HRV uh, for your age group, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, having a measurement of 90 today and, and your average you know, RMSDD is 50 doesn't make 90 better. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So that is a, that is a good uh, beginning understanding. So tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and how did, how did you get into this? All right, so I'm Thomas Badalari. As you, as you said earlier, I'm, I'm the chief of sports medicine physicians at Columbia Presbyterian, and I arrived there in sort of a roundabout way. Um, you know, academic medicine appealed to me for eight and a half years of private practice because of so many observations that I was making that I wanted to find ways of translating these clinical observations into publications that can help guide our specialty, that can help us all to learn from one another. So. Um, I've been at Columbia Presbyterian almost six years now, and it's really been a great pleasure. Uh, I've learned a lot. I've, I've, I've participated in a lot of different types of research while I was there. 
um, in these first six years. But you know, now I'm really redirecting my energy to an area that's interested me for the past 14 or 15 years. Um, when I was in fellowship, I did my fellowship in a combined program with uh, the New Jersey Shore uh, Medical Center and the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Medical Center. So I had some uh, time at, at the, uh, the Rutgers campus. And in my time there, I discovered a place called the Center for Alcohol Studies. Uh, when I was in residency in the days where moonlighting was still a big thing, I was moonlighting in a drug rehabilitation clinic uh, at the end of my uh, training. And uh, it was really, that was a, a major eye-opening experience at the height of the, uh, um, the Sackler um, you know, crisis, the opiate crisis. Uh, where pharmaceutical companies were pushing these opiates with, with reckless abandon and people were becoming addicted all over our country. Um, I was working in a rehab and seeing the impact of that day to day. And um, I, uh, so this is 2007, let's say, and um, uh, 2006, 2007. And as I began my fellowship, I was still keeping some hours there, but they ended up uh, closing up that unit. But my interest in, in alcohol and drug abuse and addiction uh, didn't end with with my time in the uh, in the clinic, and so I found out that there was a clinic at Rutgers that was doing this kind of work, and the guy that was directing it uh, was also a former athlete, baseball player, and golfer, and and somebody who uh, had some contact with through my sports medicine experience. While I was there uh, in the Center for Alcohol Studies, I learned a lot about you know the the rates of uh, risk of of alcoholism and drug abuse in athletics and and actually it was higher than the general population, which was somewhat surprising to me. Uh, but at the same time, my interest in brain injury led me to having some conversations with um, with the director of the of the program there, who pointed me to uh, a psychologist that was working with other researchers at Rutgers looking at uh, the psychology of sport and looking at brain injury and um, the, the, the cognitive components of performance. And I was, I was very blessed to meet the Bastillos, the husband and wife uh, science team at Rutgers that looked at heart rate variability in relation to performance. I was also very lucky to meet uh, Paul Lehrer, who was looking at heart rate variability in relation to asthma and attention deficit in kids. And at that time, uh, Leah Lagos was uh, finishing her PhD at Rutgers, and she was looking at heart rate variability and she and I would have conversations about what we were learning from the Bustillos and, and Lehrer and, and how this stuff might apply in clinical practice. Um, simultaneously, um, Bennett Amalu was talking nationally about you know, his, his uh, findings in dissecting an NFL player's brain of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And so in conversations with Leah and talking about all of these various interests um, in, in relation to the mental components of sports and brain injuries, she and I started to talk about my own history in brain injury and, and my own experience as an athlete suffering concussions. And I played high school and collegiate football, and I retired in my second year at Wagner College because of repetitive brain trauma. And uh, at that time, the American Academy of 1997 guidelines were three concussions and you were out. That was it. Um, and so, you know, my three concussions probably were three concussions. Who knows how many I actually had because our diagnostic criteria were not as as stringent as they are in the modern world. And, and so after my injuries, there was some low level um, chronic change in my brain that, that impaired certain things. It, it provoked migraines and it, it, uh, it caused me to have to learn how to study differently. And it, it, it changed uh, some of my mood and, and, you know, it created some depression that I had to battle through. 
Um, and some of those things lingered chronically. And so 10 years after I retired from football in 2007 in conversations with Leah, we, we started to wonder, is there a connection between heart rate variability and brain trauma that we can use to determine when somebody has a concussion and when somebody recovers from concussion? Um, we were not really equipped to do a lot of the research, but we were in a position where over the next few years, uh, upon her graduation, upon my completion of fellowship, she and I developed a really nice relationship, and, and we began to see some concussion patients together. We wrote up a case report in 2011. I think it was published in 2012. And over that period of time, we had contemplated different ways of studying it, but uh, we didn't have a really great way from a technology standpoint to study it. We didn't really have the means and, and, uh, and infrastructure to study it. Um, Leah has since gone on to a career coaching uh, biofeedback and, and uh, looking at heart rate variability in relation to athletes ranging from golfers to surfers to uh, uh, chess masters. And, and she's worked with guys that are, that are pretty famous, guys like Adam Robinson and Josh Waitzkin and uh, Tim Ferriss. And um, that really, you know, over the past year, seeing her do that work and having conversations with her really inspired me to, to get my nose back to the grindstone on the research. Uh, of heart rate variability. And, and I'm currently involved in some projects and um, we've been able to publish a case study looking at soccer players and, and um, you know, response to injuries, specifically concussion and, and what does the pattern of HRV look like. Uh, but there's lots of research happening and there's clearly a pattern of, of, of HRV suppression and concussion that's related either directly to the injury itself or to the deconditioning of, of resting. Uh, but, but that's where I am. I know it's a long way around the block in terms of how do we get where we are now in terms of, um, you know, pursuing the research. And, and a lot of it has to do with the developments of technology and just how available uh, wearable technologies and uses of the iPhone have made uh, heart rate variability measurements. No, I love it. I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's, well, first of all, you take something like heart rate variability, which is, you know, already interesting. And then you apply it to something as, you know, obtuse as concussions. And you're left saying, it could be really applied to a lot of things. We just have to figure that out. And the fact that you uh, already made the jump from, you know, am I ready for a workout type type thing, which it's being used for a lot, or how did I sleep, or how's my stress level to something as, you know, as obscure or obtuse as, how how well have I recovered from this concussion when so much of that is subjective? I mean, we cannot we cannot take a slice out of someone's brain and see how much calcium is still in the in the cell. Uh, for those of you who understand concussions a little better, but but to be able to try to translate that into autonomic nervous system type uh, signals, I think is extraordinary. And I think also that it sets the tone for a lot of people who are saying, "Listen, we can measure." perhaps more things um, and, and kind of set the stage for, for more research and, and, you know, hopefully more discovery. Yeah. You know, again, in, in what you're saying, there's so, there's so much to unravel, you know, firstly uh, the autonomic nervous system does have some cognitive uh, influence, right? We, we can influence our HRV uh, through our respiratory rate, um, through our, our conscious awareness. And, um, you know, so that's one thing we might want to dive into. But uh, the, the other parts of what you're saying in terms of where does, the, you know, the autonomic nervous system's influence begin and end in terms of um, cognitive performance for professionals or uh, professional athletes, you know, who want to perform better in shooting a free throw or, or uh, um, 
you know, taking a penalty shot uh, in, in hockey, let's say, you know, does, is there an influence of the online nervous system in those tasks? And the answer is probably yes, right? You know, the ability to turn on sympathetic and then have it calm down is something that's really important in athletics. You know, if you think about a soccer player, for example, who is who is away from the ball and, and is just trying to find body position, you know, you wouldn't want a sympathetically overloaded athlete in that situation. But, you know, suddenly a wing gets a ball, you know, past him, there's a break, there's an opportunity to go get that free ball up by the net. And you want the sympathetic system to turn on very robustly and, and react very quickly so that heart rate matches demand and, and you're getting enough oxygenation to tissues. And, and in modulating heart rate variability, we've seen that you can improve performance through a program called biofeedback, which is cognitive influence of heart rate variability. Um, so, you know, it's not completely unconscious as a measurement. Uh, another thing we might want to talk about that you're sort of hinting to is, is this a biomarker for things? You know, can we use this to fill in the void where, you know, concussion medicine, you know, practicing as a physician in the modern world, trying to diagnose concussion relies heavily on athlete reporting. We, we have to ask the athlete how they're feeling and then have confidence that the athlete is now going to tell us that they're injured. And this is something I'm actually thinking about writing a blog about because over the course of my career, having seen thousands of concussions uh, from, from 2007 until, you know, current time, I've seen some trends in the way athletes report. And what I'm seeing is, is that, you know, where the media had been driving us to capture and influence and educate um, in 2008, 2009, 2010, we saw numbers increasing for sports like football and hockey. Um, as of late, you know, over the past few years, I've seen a, a steady drop in those numbers again. And you wonder, is it helmet technology? Is it that athletes are just, you know, hitting more intelligently. The penalties are decreasing the rate of concussion, right? So there was a the the, the targeting rule in football, which has tripled down to high school athletics. Um, we wish that it would be even more uh, pronounced in, in New York City and, and in JSIA in in, in uh, New Jersey. So you know, as far as officials, you know, we we have changed the rules, and those have had direct impact on the rate of injury, right? So the targeting rule, we, we published a paper out of Columbia just this past year, you know, in, in terms of how that affects, you know, the, the impact of uh, athletic uh, rate of injury by changing that rule, you know, so the, the NFL changed the rule and then the NCAA implemented it as well. And, and harsher penalties mean we're not using the helmet as a weapon. How much of that has led to a decreased rate of concussion versus decreased reporting from athletes? where, you know, you hear things like, don't say the C word, or, you know, don't tell coach you have a headache, you'll miss two weeks of the season. You know, if you listen to the whispers of the athletes and, and you hear what athletic trainers are hearing in the locker rooms or near the locker rooms, I should say, um, you find out that kids are reporting less. And that is affecting our, our rate of injury in a negative way because we want to discover these injuries and protect kids. But more importantly, as it pertains to heart rate variability, is this a biomarker that we can use? Is this a widely available, inexpensive biomarker? And we don't really have the answer to that at the moment, but that's really something I would love to elucidate from my research, or I, I would love for others to explore and, and, and have you know, more uh, tools at our disposal. Um, people talk about blood markers and serum markers, uh, but, but the reality is, is that this is an inexpensive, usable tool that does show suppression when the brain is injured, and might prompt the conversation, if nothing else, to get the athlete to report honestly. 
So that's another part of what you said that I think is really important. Yeah, you know, and there's so many different things that can be done with that. You know, for me, with with patients who are in pain, how how well did my how well did what I just uh, implemented uh, help? Uh, how much mm-hmm. how much is the person reporting pain? Uh, you know. Uh, and and maybe over-reporting or under-reporting. Right, and and that might pertain to musculoskeletal injury, exactly. right? Exactly. So if you, yeah, if you look at readiness for return to play, um, you know, is there a real correlation here between athletic injury and readiness for return to play in terms of heart rate variability? Something we're planning on doing as well with our research. Um, so you know, this is these are really great points, uh, but a lot of unknowns and. Uh, what, what I've said about heart rate variability is that it's, it's sort of the great vital sign that that's been missing from from the doctor-patient conversation. You know, when we talk about stress, right? Stress kills, hypertension, heart disease. Uh, you know, you think about the inflammatory cascade and how we know that people that are under duress have an impaired immune system, right? And so, how important is it for us to measure stress? Um, and, you know, the, the, the analogy of other uh, vital signs, you know, blood pressure and, and resting heart rate um, as examples, you know, your, your, your body weight is, is considered a, a vital sign, you know, and, and, you know, you think about your fat versus muscle and, and, and understanding that weight alone isn't enough, right? So if you just say, okay, what's somebody's weight? That only tells you a little bit. And what about their BMI? Well, depending on what nationality you are, uh, BMI probably isn't a great measure of your, of your health. Um, so what really matters, what matters is how much muscle versus fat are you carrying? You know, do you, do you have central adiposity or don't you? And, and are you, you know, are you in a, a situation where that adiposity is causing a metabolic cascade that's detrimental to your health? We've learned that the weight is not the answer. Similarly, I think we, we are learning that resting heart rate is just not enough. You know, we can take that to the next level by looking at that variability and having this measure of stress response. Very good. You know, and and we've talked about, uh, you know, that insulin rise uh, with increased stress, insulin rise leads to increased inflammation, which leads to so many other things. But for you to bring up visceral fat, I mean, that that is there's almost a direct correlation between, you know, stress and and vis and eating and visceral fat and insulin. I just think that that opens up an entire an entire new understanding or an entire new Pandora's box as far as problems go. Perhaps we have such a we have a terrible uh, comprehension of, at least individually. At least individually. Yeah, yeah. This opens the door. I mean, you know, doctors have been telling patients for a very long time, you know, you got to decrease your stress. Right? Stress, stress is what led to that ulcer. Stress is what's going to lead to the heart attack. You know, um, the, the reality though is is that how do we implement strategies for having that conversation in a more meaningful way. Can we measure and can we show uh, people that they're actually improving or that they're, they're, they're getting worse over time? And, and I think heart rate variability can answer that. Okay. So my heart rate, let's say, for example, my heart rate right now, if I were to say, oh, my heart rate is 63 and my heart rate variability, uh, Dr. Battleri, is right now is, you know, 35. What does that tell you? doesn't help us a lot at all. It, it, it's sort of the difference between doing an ECG and doing a 48-hour Holter monitor, right? So um, these snapshots in time offer some insight, you know, some, some tiny insight, but you really want to look at trends over time to understand these variables better. You know, it, it's like the difference between doing a finger stick glucose and doing a hemoglobin A1C, right? So to just explain that better, your finger stick glucose is going to tell you what your sugar is right now, 
And your hemoglobin A1C is going to tell you what your sugar has been over three months. Um, and, and, you know, is one more important than the other? Well, it depends on the context of the question, right? If somebody's in a diabetic emergency, they're hypoglycemic or they're, they're hyperglycemic to the point where they're at risk of uh, something like DKA or something. Um, you, you want to know what their finger stick glucose is right now. You know, do we need to treat with glucagon? Do we, do we need to treat with insulin? But if you are talking about, you know, do we need to increase or decrease metformin, right? A medicine that controls diabetes, you, you might say, okay, well, what's their hemoglobin A1C? You know, should we add insulin or shouldn't we add insulin uh, as a chronic uh, therapeutic? You want that longer term measurement. I think the same thing could be said of heart rate variability snapshots. If I take your heart rate variability right now, and it's lower than your usual, right? So 35 is a number that might be considered on the lower end of the spectrum. Maybe doing a little biofeedback breathing can bring it up for a short period of time to 50. And maybe if you practice that breathing every day for a few minutes a day, you'll hit 50 more frequently and you'll have more stability in that measurement. And then if we look at the trend over the next three months and we see that your, your heart rate variability day to day is trending from 45 to 55 or 45 to 60, let's say, and it's not really getting above or below those levels on your day-to-day measurements, um, that might be encouraging. That might be, you know, a sign that you're starting to have some stability, less volatility in your HRV measurements. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, um, some of the apps that you're using right now, some of the wearables that you're using right now, whether it be your Garmin or your Apple Watch, they're measuring your heart rate variability in the background and you don't even know it. And, um, and you can open up your application. You can go on the health app on your Apple Watch. Or you can go into the Garmin application and you can look at heart rate variability and you can see what has it been before my knowledge of HRV was, was, was uh, elucidated. And um, you can then start to see, okay, well, what can I do to modulate that? And, and you can start to look at those numbers over time with an application that's built in. Or there are so many applications now that are out there in the world that, uh, that measure your day-to-day uh, heart rate variability um, using just a basic camera phone on your, on your, on your smart device. Um, you know, and there's a bunch of them. There's the lead HRV. There's um, HRV4 training. Uh, that's my favorite one right now. Uh, CoreSense. Um, you know, there, there's a bunch of these types of applications. I'm not endorsing any one of them. Uh, the one we've been using more frequently uh, because the technology is less expensive and very good is uh, the HRV for training, but this is a growing market and the technology is going to keep allowing us to, to measure better and better over time. So, you know, the, the, the long-winded answer to you is it doesn't matter a whole hell of a lot what your HRV is right now. It matters in the context of what has your heart rate variability been and where is it going over time. And if you measure it again in five minutes, it might be 85. And if you measure it 10 minutes from then, it might be 25. Um, that doesn't help us a whole heck of a lot. So the other part of the answer that's really important is what's the setting that you're measuring in, right? You know, are you measuring the same time of day every day? And is there a way to control for other variables that create a high noise to signal um, uh, uh, data point, which is not what you want. You don't want the noise. You want the signal, right? And so how do we eliminate some of the noise from HRV? Um, and the answer to that basically is, is Number one, measure the same time every day and try to be in the same environment and, um, you know, sitting or standing or laying down, but the same every day um, and try before you've had some of the day-to-day uh, simulation. So we usually recommend doing this uh, first thing in the morning, you know, uh, upon awakening, you know, take a measurement. Okay. So, you know, I also do, I also measure my sleep and, and next week we're talking about sleep, but 
you know, uh, when I get these different measurements from the sleep device that I use, one of the things it gives me is HRV. And I, and initially what I did is I looked at all my sleep stuff and I was like, ah, there's a lot of information there. I, d- I don't really understand. Uh, and then the HRV would come through and I w- and it would give me a number and it would tell me how my recovery was. And I, and I, and it was hard for me to kind of understand that. And if it's hard for me, I assume it's hard for others. And then the second part of that thing is, is that with the sleep, there was all kinds of tips as far as what I should do to be able to sleep better. And I, I, I know that you have some, you know, some tips as far as help with the HRV, but you know, I have a habit of putting three questions into one. So unwrap that as you know, I love what I love what you're asking there. Cause I think what the big question is, Sean is, you know, can we measure HRV during sleep and, and what do we do with that information? Um, you know, the, the question of sleep is a bigger question. Like you said, that's going to be a whole nother podcast episode for you. Um, so I won't get into sleep per se, but what I will say is that there's, there's four stages of sleep, right? And in each of those stages, your HRV might be different. Um, and when I say it might be, it is, right? And so what some companies have claimed but not shown well is that they're controlling for your stage of sleep and measuring in your REM sleep or the final five minutes of, of REM sleep before you awake using, you know, proprietary algorithms, and what have you. When you talk to sleep specialists, though, there's, there's, there's a lot of confusion about that because when you do a sleep study, the amount of monitoring you do from, from, you know, capnography, which measures your, your, your CO2 output to, um, chest excursion to respiratory rate to oxygen saturation to eye movement, you know, um, to establish the fact that you are in REM sleep are, they're not there, right? If you're using wearable technology, your wearable technology is not capable of all of that yet, right? Yet, who knows what will come. Uh, but the reality is current technology doesn't allow us to really stage sleep accurately. We can make some guesses uh, based on O2 sats and heart rate and things like this, or, or using the, the movement data, you know, with the, um, with the, uh, the ability of, of, a, of a sensor to determine whether or not you're moving or if you're, if you're not moving. Uh, but but most sleep experts, I think, agree that you know that the accuracy of staging sleep with these types of technologies is relatively low. Um, we can give some guesstimates about how many hours you were in bed and, and how much that means you probably slept, but not much more than that. So I don't I don't really put a lot of stock, and I think a lot of people that are doing HRV research are not putting a lot of stock in the accuracy of the stage of sleep matching to the HRV. And so because of that, you know, garbage in, garbage out research, right? So uh, those data points may represent noise. We, we don't really know that they represent an accurate signal. Um, and when I say that, what I'm saying to you is because context matters when you measure HRV, the historic way of doing this type of research was to do a five-minute reading in a clinical setting after five minutes of sort of conditioning for the measurements, right? So there was this whole setup that you'd have to go through, and, and most measurements were done in the seated position. Um, and um, after a specific sequence of, of breathing um, uh, exercises or what have you. Um, in the modern world, we can do better, right? Because this technology is available where you are, this idea of doing the, the, the measurement upon awakening around the same time of day, every day in the same position, um, is probably a better control measure, right? Because as you know, research is all about controlling variables, right? And so when we're talking about usable data, we've got to control the variables. And unfortunately, I don't think that most of the advertisements around this wearable technology that promise that they're measuring the same 
uh, stage of sleep every night when they're giving you that HRV data, I don't think they're accurate. And if you look at the data you get, even with something as simple as an HRV from an Apple Watch, you'll see that the time that the, the watch is measuring and the, and the numbers that you get aren't always correlating really well with the day-to-day measurements that you get with your resting daily HRV upon awakening. The variation is much wider on those sleep numbers. And Apple doesn't claim to be measuring sleep or sleep stage, um, but it's just an example of the fact that you know your sleep time measurement may not be the best measurement to use to determine variability. So that's why you like the the apps that you like that you that you recommended. Yeah, I like that you can understand. You know, you can look at you know a blog from from HRV for training, for example, and Marco Altini will explain to you exactly what I just explained to you in a way that's usable. And you become the scientist that is exploring your own physiology, right? You become the researcher and the subject. Um, you know, you, you, you have a good understanding that you have to control these variables in order to have accurate measurements or reliable measurements, I should say. And that, you know, controlling these variables allows you to determine trends over time. That's the goal. We want to determine trends over time. That's great. You know, and I, and I think that having that understanding where everything is not perfect, but still being able to say, listen, I'm, I'm still using, I'm still using this or I'm still using, you know, whatever it is to control my stress or to control, you know, in, an increasing number of, of variables in my life is incredibly useful. We're just hopeful that it'll become more useful. You know, uh, right. you and I talked about this uh, previously, but like when the Apple Watch tells me I should probably take a deep breath, it's measuring heart rate variability. That's right. Anytime you click the breathe application on the watch, it's, it's measuring your variability in the background. So what is this, what is this with breathing? Um, so when you breathe in, there's, there's physiologic change that increases and decreases your heart rate. So there's various ways of, of thinking about breathing. You know, the most sort of, uh, I, I sort of touched on this in the very beginning of this talk was, um, the most sort of basic physiology is that when you breathe in, you're decreasing the pressure in your, your thoracic cavity, right? So you've got this this casing around your your, your lungs and your, your your pleura are all sort of encasing the air that's flowing into your body. You know, so your diaphragm expands, and then when that happens, that negative pressure in your chest is pulling blood into that space. And so your, your venous return or the amount of blood that's coming back to the heart is increasing with inspiration physiologically just based on pressure differentials. And then when you breathe out, the opposite happens. Your intrathoracic pressure is greater than the environment around it. And so it's pushing the blood away and it's, it's decreasing the amount of blood that's coming back to your heart. So just based on the way the pump works, there's an increase in contractility. Uh, based on what is it, Starling's law, right? To increase preload and, and such that we learned in medical school so many of the years ago, um, <laughs> is, is going to increase contractility and rate, and and just based on that, you know, sort of physiology. But there's also the resting tone of the uh, there there's efferent and afferent, meaning that there's signals that come from the heart and the vasculature to the brain, and there's signals that come from the brain to the vasculature and the heart that determine everything from your heart rate to your blood pressure. Um, and the afferents, the, the, the signals that are going back to your brain, are stimulated by some of these process, uh, processes. So you have baroreceptors in your carotid arteries, right? Baroreceptors recognize pressure, and they're connected to your vagus nerve. So the vagal afferents and efferents are influencing 
the contractility of your heart. They're suppressing, right? Parasympathetic is going to slow your heart. Um, or they're, they're sort of releasing their control and allowing the, the heart rate to increase. Um, similarly, you have connections from the sympathetic system to the heart that when are stimulated are going to increase contractility and rate. Um, so the, um, the idea is, is that by controlling your respiratory rate, your pace, your depth of breath, you can stimulate your vagus nerve and you can change your heart rate, right? You can literally slow your heart down with vagal stimulation, right? Which is something like if a kid has supraventricular tachycardia or a patient has supraventricular tachycardia, before we hit them uh, with the medications to slow the heart rate, we ask them to just bear down or breathe into a straw with their thumb over the end of it to create what's called a valsalva maneuver, right? Which is that valsalva is stimulating the baroreceptors and, and that might break spontaneously that supraventricular tachycardia. So these are concepts that are well known in medicine, but we haven't really to a wide extent employed for day-to-day you know, usage. And so um, we can teach breathing exercises that actually influence your heart rate variability just by the act of using deep breathing and paced breathing. And create more of a parasympathetic rather than sympathetic balance. Uh, vagus nerve parasympathetic, yeah. but then also relax, actually, actually physiologically induce relaxation. Yeah, I hate the word relaxation. You know, I, I hate the word relaxation. I'm relaxed when I'm sitting by a pool or the ocean and, you know, I'm, I'm watching my kids and, and, and I'm with my family. That's relaxation, right? Uh, if I'm at work, I don't want to be relaxed. I just want to be in a balanced state. I want to be able to do what I need to do efficiently, right? So it's not so much relaxation. It's, it's balance. It's finding the polarity between vigilance and the ability to, uh, to, to focus, Got right? It. So, you know, if you think about those extremes of, of being vigilant, right? So you think about, you know, being an army ranger in, in, in a firefight, right? Or, um, you know, being a, um, a football player in, in, in the trenches, right? Those are, those are hyper vigilant states. Those are, you know, states where your sympathetic tone is going to be at its, its absolute peak. Um, and if you think about, you know, the other extreme where you're resting on a beach and you're listening to the waves, that's another extreme, right? What we want is we want balance. You know, we want to be able to think when we're asked to think and we want to be able to digest when we need to digest and we want to be able to go when it's time to go. And that, and that's really what we're doing. We're tuning is, is a good way to think about it. You're tuning the system. You're oh, not good. trying to relax. Yeah, that's right? really good. If you, yeah, if you try to relax, what happens? You know, imagine a person who's hysterical and you say, relax, right? <laughs> it's gonna, it's usually going to have the opposite effect on that person. I, I read something where they were talking about that when people's heart rate variability, you know, the heart rate variability is decreased, right? It's good to be, no, it's increased, right? The heart rate variability is increased. Their willpower is better. That's right. That's absolutely right. You know, there was actually a, a study um, I, I was reading last night, in fact. Uh, there's, a, there's a PhD candidate. I love Twitter's ability to hone in on people that do stuff that you're interested in, right? So I'm not a big fan of social media. I've deleted most of my accounts other than Twitter. And the only people I follow on Twitter are basic research scientists and doctors, um, which really allows me to kind of build a network of people that I like to communicate with. But, um, you know, and not giving a plug to Twitter because, you know, love them or hate them for what they do. I just, it's the only social media outlet that I, that I, uh, that I currently use. And it's because of that fact that I can follow people I want to follow and see their research. 
Uh, anyway, there's this young guy. He's going for his PhD in in uh, uh, physiology, exercise physiology, and he's, he's very interested in heart rate variability. And he did a really interesting study looking at cognitive performance in, in people and their stress response. And what's interesting is that relationship of suppressed heart rate variability and people's perception and reaction to stress, right? People's sort of subjective analysis of how well did I handle the stress today? And the answers are usually correlating really well with what their HRV was that morning. You know, in other words, if your heart rate variability was lower than usual, if you had a number that was 25 or 30, let's say, and your usual coasting number is 75, um, and somebody asked you to do just one more task toward the end of the day, your response to that stress, you know, your subjective experience is that was a major stress, you know, even though it's a small perturbation. Um, so there, there is a very direct correlation that, that is being, you know, elucidated every day in, in relation to people's perception of what stress is and whether or not they actually are in balance, you know, whether or not that, that variability is at a number that, that seems to make sense in relation to their day-to-day function. Oh, that's really good. All right. This is, this has been a really good discussion. I, I, um, I'm excited uh, to see where this goes, you know, and, and I know that I know that you're incredibly interested in the research. And if somebody wants to reach out, reach out to you, how would how would they do so? Well, I just mentioned one channel, right? So docbots ny d o c b o t t s n y at uh, you know at uh, docbots ny is, is my Twitter handle. Uh, so that's a fun one. Um, the the other channels, my my email or website docbots.com, d o c b o t t s dot com, um, and that's also my email docbots at gmail dot com. Um, any of those channels would be great. And all that will be, all that will be in our show notes. I, you know, I, I just think you're in a unique position where, uh, you're very interested in this. You're incredibly knowledgeable about this. You're in one of the, I mean, and people may not think about this, but New York is one of the, the greatest cities that's ever existed on this planet. I mean, it, <laughs> it's a, it's, you know, there's obviously several in the United States that are great, but when you look through the expanse of history, you know, uh, there, there are probably 10, and some of them still exist and some don't, but New York is one is, is in that list. And to be in the center of that and to be, you know, as knowledgeable as you are about this topic, it really puts you in a position where, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you already are a leader in this, in, in the beginning, the bolt, this, this burgeoning field. Uh, but, um, we're just so excited to have you on here to talk about this and, uh, you know, to have somebody that other people can, you know, uh, contact and, and, you know, talk about their, their research or, or where they want to go. And I just think that, I, I just think I'm, I'm, I'm envious of where you are as far as in your development of this, of this, uh, you know, particular field. And I'm anxious to see where it goes. Yeah. As am I, Sean. And, and that's part of the reason for, for doing this with you is just to, to get people stimulated, you know, as a, as a clinician, I think you and I, both understand that you know our primary responsibility is, is taking care of human beings. You know, and, and that's that's a hundred percent of my focus. You know, most of uh, of every day. And, and when I'm not taking care of patients, a lot of times we're coordinating care, and, and you know what that's like. So, um, my real hope here is to stimulate you know our, our research brethren, you know our PhD friends to, to to connect and and to work with us in clinical medicine to help us further this. And I, I'm really blessed because I've I've hooked up with some really cool basic research. Uh, basic science researchers, you know, Andrew Flat out of Georgia Southern, Marco Altini out in Amsterdam in Europe. And, and um, 
you know, the, the, the amount that these guys have given in terms of their time and energy and helping us to formulate a plan to do this research has been wonderful. But, you know, the, the greatest part of, of what I hope to come from this is that lots of clinicians will become interested in this field. Lots of researchers will want to hook up with them. And this science will grow fast. And, and what we know now, we'll laugh at hopefully in five years. And we'll say, wow, how much we, we had to learn and how much we've learned in, in, in a short period of time. That, that's really what I hope. Really good, really good, and and I would uh, encourage anyone to go look at your website. I I I have I enjoyed uh, several of your blog posts, but I I really enjoyed the one where uh, you took a picture of yourself on the empty New York streets, and and <laughs> you know when COVID came, and and I and I think that you know fifty years from now people are going to marvel at that picture, and I'm just so glad you took it when you could, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who did, but but that one that one really struck a chord, so. I very much appreciate you coming on today and 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 just sharing your your knowledge with us. I, this was a topic that I did not know much about, and I'm and I'm I'm really excited that you introduced it to not only me but to all my listeners. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciate the work you are doing, and, and keep it up. I, I know that this is uh, just the beginning of great things to come in terms of getting people to understand what we do in sports medicine and how important it is uh, to move their bodies. Exercise is medicine. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's amongst the most important areas. Obviously, we both specialize in this, in this field, but it's certainly an area that affects every level and every organ system. You know, your ability to move your body well and, um, and stay fit and stay healthy. So keep doing what you're doing because it's really, really great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen. Please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also, visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.